You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Uh, I'd like to start see if people have actually any specific questions about the readings we've had so far because it'd be a good place to start. And if you don't have any, pretend that you do. <laughs> yes? I was interested in um, a couple of people talked about the idea of the other. Um, so you mentioned it, and I think in a The other what? Oh, were you asking me? Or yes. Anyway. Okay. Oh, well, I'll go. Um, I, um, it influences me a lot. And one of the reasons I write comedy is because I was one of these people who had a real job, and I s- was bored, and I spent a lot of my time on a uh, company forum just snarking around. And first I just argued with people, which is always fun. And then I, but I wasn't winning people over to my side. You know, I was just preaching to the choir. So I wanted to get, that wasn't challenging enough. That was shooting fish in the barrel. I wanted to get the people who didn't agree with me to agree with me. And I found out that if I wrote humor, mm-hmm. I, could, I could make them see me as something else. I could make them um, see my point of view. And so... I was. I started writing satire. I was doing satirical op-eds for the San Francisco Chronicle, and I remember writing one about gay marriage, and it got picked up by right-wing Christian websites that wrote, "This is pretty funny. She's got a point." Actually, I was writing in my initials, so they said, "He's got a point." <laughs> <laughs> and to me, it was just such a a thrill because this was something to me. Um, gay marriage is the great civil rights issue of our time. And to make people rethink their points of view about it. So how did you do it? What was the, the, the main hinge in that piece? Well, it was basically saying that all the gay people who plan marriages, and oddly enough, I was, Margaret Cho had written something similar. I found out. I thought she was copying me. She wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was about, you know, all the gay people who put on the wedding she just boycotted putting on weddings. And we'll see how long the men and uh, the parents who are putting their little princesses up. You know, this whole princess for a day thing just makes me insane. Um, We'll see how long they hold out if they can't have their uh, flower arrangers and their dress designers and their event planners putting together a wedding. So anyway, that's that's where I got. And so I, I had written some more serious stuff and I was told it was too dark and unpublishable, unmarketable. So I, I wrote comedy then. And I love writing comedy. Well, how does that relate to the other? Because I can, Terry, Terry, Terry. <laughs> because I can show them my point of view in a way that they can accept I can be from the outside, show them a different point of view, and they can, they, they'll listen to it if I make them laugh. And if I just said, you guys are a bunch of, you know, I'm not going to say it. All right. <laughs> I also think that the, uh, the position, the perspective from other is really a, a good way to actually Id- identify the mainstream. I think James Baldwin said something like, you know, America has no identity until black people give it an identity. That it doesn't really exist until people of color um, are who've always been put in opposition or always been marginalized uh, by the United States. Th- that marginalization provides the perspective to actually see the country. And, and so in many ways, I think people who are on the margins provide a particular perspective that could be just a little bit, um, I don't off-center or, or just a different from a different position. And I always find that kind of interesting. 
very, very interesting. And so um, the characters that I, I write tend to have that sense of otherness in their lives for a variety of reasons. Um, Our and, newest Supreme yeah. Court justice would agree with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess um, as the old white guy, <laughs> I'm supposed to, but uh, it seems to me that the other thing is is very relevant to our discussion in terms of like um, who writes science fiction and who who it's about. I'm wondering how much that influences what it's about. Uh, and at the same time, I'm also thinking when you talk about the other or looking at something from outside. It seems to me that that's a actually a, a definition pretty much of literature in general. Yes, uh, absolutely. You know, I mean, Henry James uh, had dinner with the finest, uh, with all the hoity-toits in London, and he was part of London society and stuff, but he always stood on the edge of things and mm-hmm. looked in. So I think there's always a, a an alien, I think literature comes out of a either a a separation that's there politically or culturally, or a separation that the writer, you know, look at Joyce, that the writer who was, who could be more embedded in Ireland, and yet he wrote as, I, I think that writing as the other is something that all writers All writers, do. I agree. Well, I, I disagree. <laughs> Good. Um, I, I think I think um, I think you're right to the to the extent that um, that to be able to observe society, a writer has to pull him or herself out of um, out of that perspective um, in the center of society or attempt to do so and look at it from the outside um, but that's something that we we all do to some extent or another or attempt to do to some extent or, in, or another um, but like I was saying earlier just in, in my own personal experience um, I had two inspirations to write science fiction Ursula Le Guin and Octavia Butler and Ursula Le Guin was um, ineffective in inspiring me to write, although she inspired me to read a great deal. Um, and, and I figured out eventually it was because her perspective wa- uh, is a very anthropological one. It's a very um, white imperialist one, even though she herself critiqued that, her own perspective, uh, an enormous amount. That was her perspective. And, um, and I think um, her work was special because she was able to critique that perspective, but there is a lot of work that comes from that perspective, um, that comes from the American, the European abroad, um, and a lot of science fiction is just a euphemism for the uh, American or European abroad, um, which comes from a very imperialist perspective of um, looking down or looking outward at the other rather than um, than being sort of the, the, the citizen of the world, the citizen of the galaxy, who, um, who is just one among many. And, um, and Octavia Butler's perspective, why, why she so inspired me and why she was able to, you know, op- sort of open the floodgates for me was um, she was able to, to stand both inside and outside of that perspective um, and, and really inhabit this space, this um, marginal space where you are in the middle of something, you're in the middle of your own community, you're in the middle of um, whatever it is that you are, but there are powers, there are great powers outside of you that control your life who view you as, as alien or other and, um, and who are able to enforce their ideas of you upon you in your, in your own life. And trying to negotiate those two positions, the position of being central in your own worldview and the position of being othered in the more powerful worldview. That is what Octavia Butler gives us. And, that, and I think that's why her work is so, so powerful because anybody who reads it can then get into that headspace even if they don't live in that headspace themselves. That makes sense? Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting because um, now, like in terms of Le Guin, uh, that's, that's a very sort of pregnant idea. That the idea that it's, I mean, in, in one sense, science fiction, one of the roots of science fiction is uh, European travel literature. It is about going to the other place and meeting with the other, you know. And, uh, and I, guess, I guess you're right. She does, I'm thinking of left-handed darkness. Um, she kind of writes from the center looking out yeah. rather than from the periphery looking in, you know. Uh, that's, that's interesting, yeah. But I also think that most, and we don't have to like beat this to death, but I think most writers personally start from a sense of marginalization. It may not be global, political, 
But I think that's part of what pushes writers to write. Um, that sense of seeing things that they may not be totally embedded in or trying to interpret things or interpret themselves. I, I think many writers, uh, I think, who, who make it their lives feel that sense of otherness personally. But Well, certainly it does represent, I think, the mainstream of science fiction, which as... Uh, which is, is sort of what you're talking about, the Carl Brand Society, which you're you're beating against that current because that, that yeah I never thought of it like that. It's really true. If you look at uh, look at Heinlein or or uh, you know there's always there's a lot of weirdness, but um, <laughs> yeah it, it. it always it's it's kind of centered in a in a Eurocentric it's, it's a European literature, mm. you know. I mean that's where it comes from, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, because yeah, I was going to... Yeah. I was just wondering if you could say something about the Carl Brandon hoax. Ah, a little louder. The Carl Brandon hoax. Could yeah, you say something? With oh, with uh, Carl Brandon? I went to college with Carl Brandon. That's why I'm, <laughs> I'm here now. I was his roommate. <laughs> no, tell the story. It's a good story. Um, I... I have this story like tenth hand. I, I have I have the version of the story that I need to represent the Carl Brandon Society. So w when I'm done telling you this very brief story, can somebody who knows more about it please step up? Anybody? Um, Carl himself may be here. Carl himself <laughs> may be here. Um, so in the late 50s, I, I believe it was um, 58, 59, for about two years, Terry Carr and a, and a group of white writers and fans um, Terry Carr was sort of the center of, of this, this hoax, but um, there were a number of other names there. Uh, Peter Graham, I believe, was one of them. Created this fictional um, black science fiction fan named Carl Brandon, who, um, who wrote fanfic and um, wrote critiques and reviews and, um, and wrote letters into various fanzines and was published in all of these fanzines all over the place and um, became very, very popular um, not surprisingly, because he was his writing was written by a number of really good writers, um, he became very very popular, and um, one suspects probably because he was like the only black science fiction fan writing in um, in these zines at the time that 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 people knew of, <coughs> um, and um, he was actually almost elected to be the president of a fan club. Um, but 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 then his ho the, the hoax was was revealed. Um, in any case, he um, uh, uh, the the other part of the legend. I don't know how true this is, but the other part of the legend is that there were so few uh, black science fiction fans at the time who were showing up at cons, who were actually like going to the cons. That whenever anybody saw one at a con, <laughs> they would report a Carl Brandon sighting. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah. Must have been him. Yeah, yeah. must have been him. So, um, so yeah. Uh, does anybody anybody know more about this? this well, did, didn't uh, Chip Delaney have something to do with that? I Wasn't, don't know. Well, I, don't I, know. I, I sort of heard that. But then it uh, to me it's also I I don't know anything more about it. But it's it's there's there is a humorous element to it too because the uh, another uh, science fiction sort of grouping that that. Um, uh, came out of Wisconsin, I think, was the Tiptree Award. Mm -hmm. And the Tiptree Award, Alice Sheldon, this uh, a woman writer, had to publish as James Tiptree so she could get published. And uh, and so well, they, they have an award in science fiction now for this, the best stories about uh, gender issues and stuff, and they call it the James Tiptree Award, which is just sort of a, a funny, ironic comment on the whole thing. And I think the Carl Brandon Society has an element of that sort of ironic humor in it. The, yeah, the it's, it's, it's about um, basically um, the Tiptree Award is that, you know, um, women can write under their own names now um, without too much fear of being misperceived uh, or misconstrued. Not too much anyway, um, and people can write about gender without overwhelming fear of being <laughs> misperceived or misconstrued. And the same thing is true now of writers of color in in the genres that you know the the issues still persist, but there are actual fans of color and there are actual writers of color <laughs> who show up at cons <laughs> and and write under their own names and are apparent and and here. So, yeah. 
I was going to say that um, I was surprised I had been writing under my initials for the for the Cron and the Contra Costa Times, and then um, I wrote this book and I got the manuscript accepted, and then I was suddenly surprised to find out that I was a women's fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, what happened to half of my audience? Right. But I've just. But then I've learned that women buy more books than men, so I've mm-hmm. reconciled myself with it. <laughs> well, uh, I remember Octavia Butler also once. Octavia Butler said, uh, I remember she said one time that she had uh, that su- to be successful in fiction, you had to have what she called a three-legged stool. Mm-hmm. And since she was a considered a feminist author, an African American author, and a science fiction author, and she was all these things, but she also felt uh, constrained by all of them because people, if you're an African-American author, they think that that's the subtext of everything that you're writing. Or if you're a, a feminist, they think that's the subtext. And uh, I've forgotten her words on this, but I remember hearing her speak about this one time and saying it's, you know, any author is more complicated than that. And and you yeah. can get into a, it can, it can become a, a trap where you get sort of nailed as one thing. You know? I think you also you also wonder with your name on the book how many people aren't going to pick up that book. You know, if your name is Acosta or mm. your name is some, you know, how many people are just going to look at the book and pass pass by and say, "Well, I already know what this is going to be." Do you want those readers anyway? If they've got money in their wallet, you sure. But, <laughs> but you know, you, you sort of, you, you don't know and they wouldn't tell you if you asked them. You don't know. And maybe they're readers who would like your book, but they, they have an idea of what an African-American writer is or what an Asian writer is or what a, you know, Latino writer is. And, and sadly enough, um, as far as Asian-American writers go, um, a lot of times the idea that, of that they have of what an Asian American writer is 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 largely correct because um, there's a lot of self censorship and and um, tracking that goes on um, in the Asian American community around literature because that is that is the one creative arena in which Asian Americans have been very successful. There's increasing success in visual arts as well, but it's primarily around literature and everybody's read um, Woman Warrior and uh, and uh, the Joy Luck Club and. Um, this is one of the ways in which Asian Americans are being um, are being assimilated and, and mainstreamed is through this this very standard immigrant story, um, which leaves out most of um, each individual's actual experience of being Asian in America. So, um, so I, I've been actually proselytizing for speculative fiction in the Asian American community mm-hmm. because I want to break people out of this, you know, you'll, you'll get people writing these very original and very personal and individual stories and they won't get published. They won't get um, looked at. And, um, and every year, two, three, four books come out from an Asian American writer. They're all exactly the same. And they, they, they stink of, of Joy Luck Club. So um, <laughs> they do. They do. It's, it's really bad. It's really, I just wrote a really, really, t- uh, you know, like scathing review of yet another one in, um, for Hyphen Magazine because uh, it, it just it, it keeps happening over and over and over again. And I think so I think of speculative fiction um, as formulaic as it can be sometimes as um, a, a kind of pressure valve for um, ethnic writers, quote unquote, ethnic writers. Um, who need to find um, a, a kind of a, a safe or a fun way to free themselves from the tyranny of the ethnic narrative, which has become, right. frankly, am I wrong? Come yeah, on, right, uh, right. you know? I don't know. Um, Mercedes, uh, I mean, what is her name? Mercedes Lackey. It's Landris? Lackey. Lackey. No, another person. Anyway, <laughs> she writes about the, the three stories that you're allowed to tell as a Latino in the publishing uh, world. And you're allowed to tell the immigrant story. And you're uneducated, and you're pregnant, and you've come in here illegally. You're allowed to tell the um, story about the gang member, you know, and you have the gang boyfriend, and it's <laughs> violent, and it's ugly, and I forget what the other one is. But, it's, <laughs> but those are the ones you're that the, the publishers will take, will take from you. And those are the stories they want from you. And I, it's like, how, 
you know, I like magical realism when it's done well, but I don't want to write it. And I, I know that if I had written it, I could have gotten published earlier. And because that's the story they want from you. So that's why we see the same stories over and over. Although my mother did say that I should read The Joy Luck Club because it was just like us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Let me see if I can phrase this. Um, I was just interested. I am working on a young adult speculative fiction trilogy right mm. now about disability and trans and queer issues. Um, and one of my struggles as a writer is to kind of figure out how to write about like the political ideas that I want to write about in the book. And I think that Octavia Butler, along with all y'all on the panel and a bunch of other folks do really good jobs at it. Um, but a lot of people don't either, <laughs> like with a, with a sort of political message kind of thing. You know how fiction writing can be really good or like really like, this is my message. This is the message I'm trying to tell you. Like when you're reading it. And as I read all the time and I know what doesn't work as a reader when I'm trying to get my message across, but that's one of the things that I'm struggling with as a writer who's trying to write about like political ideas that I believe in, like community and disability activism and like queer and trans stuff. And um, I was just wondering if you could maybe all address kind of like how you do or don't come mm. up with, if you have like some sort of political idea that you want to get across or you don't or like how that sort of plays in and, and how you deal with that in your fiction. Does that make well, sense? Yes. I would, I would, if I start with, um, The Guild of Stories is, is, is very political for me. Um, and it certainly has uh, a p deep political underpinnings. It is about uh, family and community, the creation of family and community. And uh, it is a f feminist allegory. And I really had to think a lot about how I could write something that people would read and not know they were learning something. <laughs> because that would, that's like the kiss of death. Um, and, I, you know, and I kept going back to the feminist basics, which is the personal is political. So that everything that happens with Gilda is on a personal level and it ends up showing something valuable. Um, first, by starting with the idea that I'm going to have a vampire that's not going to kill people. That was a major uh, crisis in my writing. What about the guy in the ditch? Did it, I thought well, it wasn't deliberate. Oh. It wasn't deliberate. <laughs> you know, like, so that whenever she took blood, I had to figure out a way. Yeah, that was, that was a drag. But uh, especially for him. Um, but the whole idea that when she took blood, she wasn't going to kill people. Once I came to that, I thought, okay, well, that's the end of that novel. And the novel is a page long. Um, and so, I, you know, I came up with the idea that it was an exchange that she didn't have to take all of their blood, she could take some, and that she had to leave something in exchange. Well, that's a basic principle. Um, the lots of things like that I built into the story, hoping that people would come out of it with an, an interest in the principles that were behind her story. And it took a lot of time, quite honestly. It took a lot of time to not fall back on the regular I mean, that the piece that I read uh, earlier in which she describes what it felt like to take the blood and feel his terror, that's how it feels when you write about murder. It feels really good. <laughs> it's like your blood is racing, you're sweating. And so I thought, oh, my God, this is very creepy. And so I wanted to have her feel what a character would feel who's killing people. So to, to, to express it in a way that someone could understand it and feel it and feel the need to pull back from it. So keeping it very personal, I think, is the key. What about you, Marta? Do you have a, I mean, every writer has an agenda. How do you deal with that? Or do you? I do deal with it. I, you know, I think it's, um, I have, I have to pull myself back. I write what I want to write, and then I bring it back. I cut it out. 
I, I, I cut out so many things that I love. And sometimes I compromise. Um, my, in my first book, I had a group that was a bad group. And I'm one of these lefto, pinky, you know, pinko, atheist, whatever. So I hate corporations, and I don't understand why they have the rights of citizens' rights. It doesn't make any sense to me. But um, I had a group called Christian Americans for Christian America. <laughs> Kaka. <laughs> and, and my editor said, I think we should change this. <laughs> So now I have, you know, and I fought her on it, and I said, but they're not really a Christian group. They don't really have Christian philosophy. They just espouse Christianity as justification for their, you know, their monetary interests. Well, they're not like any of that of the other Christian groups. No, <laughs> yeah, not exactly. And anyway, I call it Corporate America for the Conservation of America, CACA. So, uh, <laughs> but um, I do have to bring things back, and I do have rants occasionally. My character has rants, and because I, I have an editor, I do have to bring things back, but I try and sneak stuff in there. Again, it's like I don't want to alienate too many readers by saying you're bad or you think your thinking is all wrong and your your mama dresses you funny. So I have to I have to pull it back a little bit and hope that it will make them think a little bit. You know, just lead them there, right. and and they could possibly walk the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. Claire, what's what's your agenda in the pigs in space story? I, uh, uh, well, well, Pigs in Space doesn't actually, I didn't actually get to this point I know. in the, in the, in the, in the story. Um, but um, somebody told me, and I, and I I did not read the cold calculations before I wrote this story, but apparently this is the feminist version of the cold calculations. So um, if you, you well, want to go out and read that title. book. What's the title? The cold, cold equations. Cold sorry, sorry, the cold right. equations. My, my, my bad. Um this is apparently the feminist version of the cold equations, which was written completely without knowledge of this other story. But, um, but what it comes down to is, and, and this is an answer to your question as well, um, for writers of color who have an identity that isn't quite mainstream white American, um, there's this, there, and I've read a lot, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for other people because I've read this a lot in a lot of places, on a lot of blogs and a lot of essays, that there's this weird kind of twilight in between place that you exist before you politicize as a writer, where your characters are kind of deraced. And, um, and I, I don't know if this works for um, ability or if it works for queerness, but I suspect it does work in a similar way. You're kind of in this in-between space where your characters just don't quite have a race, so people are able to read them as one thing or another, They're, but generally read them as white. And then there comes a moment when you ask yourself, wait a minute, what color is this character? Mm-hmm. And, and it, everything comes into focus, and you realize, well, this character is, of course blah or is is this or is that must be because it is you know and um and pigs in space i i I wrote the first draft first couple of drafts of this story without ever actually wondering who this uh this voice the the um first person narrator was what what she was where she came from and when and and she was in this weird blurry space that nobody ever questions no reader ever questions it and a lot of writers don't question it either and when I finally focused in on her and I was like, you need to see her. You need to see what she looks like. You need to see who she is. I ended up writing about 20,000 words of backstory on this woman um, who is um, an Asian American from a, a, a commune in Canada where um, it, I'm not even going to get into it. It's, it's really <laughs> long. But, um, and, 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 I cha- and, and I gave her a name at that point. She didn't even have a name. Um, and then her um, her partner on this space installation, uh, Daryl, has a, a really really long backstory, and he's really complex character. Um, and the and all of a sudden, you know, there was no there, I wasn't aware of any politics in the story, but simply by focusing in on them, you know, just putting pointing the camera there and and focusing um, on who these characters were, all of a sudden their situations in the world. Um, Ins- injected politics into the story, and um, and when this when I you know completed the story, it turned out that um, Yayoi, who's the the main character, is this um, is an Asian American um, Christian 
mostly agnostic. And Daryl is actually um, a Muslim. And, um, and this is 150 years in the future when um, there has been a kind of a, um, a cultural war as a, that, that we're, we're seeing starting now. But this is sort of um, in sort of an interregnum in the middle of this cultural war between the, the Christian world and the, and the Muslim world. And the Muslim world has kind of won. Um, because they have control of a lot of this, the sun belts of the world. And um, after peak oil, it's, uh, it's solar energy that, that wins. So, um, and this story is also about um, energy wars. They're on this installation harvesting um, cattle methane for, um, for fuel. And um, so there's a lot of like different issues that are involved in this story, and they're just touched on. They're not you know, drawn out or explicated or anything like that. And I got at them simply by focusing in on the characters and finding out who they were. And then when I went back into revise, all the politics started coming out of, of its own accord. I didn't have to put it in there. It was already in there. Mm -hmm. oh. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, oh, I'm so bad at, at um, self-promotion. Um, I have a chapbook coming out from Aqueduct Press at the end of the year which, with this story oh. in it. Cool. <laughs> Which is, uh, that's, um, what's her name's press? Timmy, Timmy uh, Duchamp. Timmy yeah. Duchamp. It's a very distinguished feminist press in the Northwest, right? Yes. Yeah, cool. Anybody else? <coughs> yes, Rick. I wonder if the panelists could talk about, uh, one thing that I like to encounter in speculative fiction are dif different bits of ethnic folklore. Uh, I really find it, it when I, that in fiction, or any whether it's speculative fiction or otherwise, I find it really entertaining, and, and I think it's a, a way for uh, writers to draw readers into that kind of world. And I wonder if any of you have used that or have thought about that. Hmm. Well, Nalo, our reader, uh, last reader, was is very big on that using um, African Caribbean mm -hmm. stuff. But how about you guys? I don't know. I yeah I certainly. Um, Somewhat like in the second chapter of the Gilda stories, it takes place in New Orleans. I originally had a lot of uh, more of the voodoo in it, but I, I really ended up taking it out because it, it was feeling like it was overwhelming the story. Um, and but there's a another Gilda story that's not you know part of the novel that I've written since that'll be in the next book in which. Gilda meets uh, a Native American woman who's turns out is actually a witch and she's quite old and so I use some of the L L Lakota uh, mythology around around that and um, when I did when I did the play version of the Gilda stories the is a secondary character in there who's from the Philippines. And so I had to do a lot of research about, well, why would this Filipino woman be, you know, in Western United States in 1890? And it turned out there was this huge war in the Philippines in the 1890s, and, and a lot of Filipinos did come to the United States around 1890. And so I, I, in writing the play, I was able to use a lot of their cultural references, and that was really great. I think the more specific you are about writers' cultural connections, the more interesting stories are. And I think that's true of all writers, um, that whatever the cultural reference points, the folklore, uh, the things your grandmother talked about, uh, they really ground a story. Interesting. Um, the one thing uh, you talked about, uh, when you're talking about Octavia Butler, I wanted to raise one thing about her because um, I'm also a big fan of Octavia Butler. And the first book I read uh, about her, they call it Lilith's Brood. Now, it used to be called the Xenogenesis Trilogy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, uh, and it was published with a, a white woman on the cover. I don't know yes. if that was yes. um, mm -hmm. how you did it. And um, I was... I. Um, that book drew me in because it was, I, I, th I didn't know she was African-American, but I knew she was a woman. 
and it was the first hard science fiction novel I'd read by a woman. And it was about, in a way that Le Guin is not, you know, it was about, it was hard SF about biology instead of about machines. And it, it absolutely blew me away. And one of the other things that blew me away, you're talking about how she wrote in the first person would draw the character in and, and mm. the cultural stuff. None of that is in here. This is, uh, uh, this book starts out in the third person Dawn, the first one, it's in the third person. The heroine, you know she's a woman, but that's all you know. You You have, and you never do learn anything about her, except that she's, she's a very cold character. And that's what I love about that book. There's a, it's just, I want to bring up, there's another side to Octavia Butler. Another aspect of her was that she was a very, she could be a very distant, very, um, always very precise, but, could, there could be a, she could bring a kind of a chill uh, to literature that I value a whole lot. There was a there was a distance. There's a distance in this book. You gradually, you know, I could go on and on, but that's she's not just somebody who was. Um, uh, uh, she was not always a a warm, personal kind of writer like that. It, she also dealt with other things, and I think that's. And this is a book very much about the other. You know where. Humans are the other, and yes. you don't, and you don't even know what you're the other from. You know? <laughs> anyway, that's um, yeah. Yeah, in, in mentioning that book, which I also read as Zena Jenner, mm. the interesting thing about that when you're talking about the other is her her protagonist is not the other. The aliens are the other. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Her protagonist, her protagonist is, is not the outsider. outsider. Right. And, yeah. But the aliens view um, humans as the other, and what they're trying to do through this process, spoiler alert, is um, they're, 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 trying to, um, they're trying to take the other. This is what they do as a species. They go, they find others, and they meld with them. Because they think we... They're, they're trying to de-other the other. As a reader, I'm not reading it as right, aliens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reading it as humans. Right, so. right. It, it's a spooky book. They love us. Uh, they're infatuated. Yes. They have a crush on us. <laughs> and what they really have a crush sensual. on is cancer. That's what they like. And, and violence. Yeah. I mean, you cancer know. Cancer and violence. They love our cancer yeah. and they love our violence. Yeah. Yeah, that's very intense. So she was, she, she was a uh, major writer yeah. <laughs> in, in uh, anyway, yeah. Octavia Butler. Um, other questions along these lines? about how in her, uh, in the last few stories that she had written, I think they were the online, the sci-fi.com ones that finally got uh, pulled into the revision of Blood Child and other stories, that she actually wrote fantasy, and it wasn't science fiction, and it seemed like that that was going to be uh, a direction she was going to go, or possibly go, and I was wondering what your thoughts were with regard to Culture-related uh, issues and fantasy, uh, or or not not science fiction, so fantasy and horror, perhaps, and uh, and the whole writing from the um, cult, uh, ethnic or other culture point of view. Claire, moi, I think I think Marta <laughs> should take this one. <laughs> I I don't write horror or science fiction. I mean, I I don't really. L- I don't know that I write fantasy. I guess I do. I don't really think about those things when I write. I just write. You know, I I don't really think what will this what category will this be? Um, so. But you're using an archetype, right? Not starting point. Not even that. Not even that. No, I'm afraid I'm not very disciplined. <laughs> I just write. I just write what comes to me, and I start thinking about later on. I was really stunned to find out that people had all these expectations of various genres. You know, they had all these rules, and they were very upset if you didn't follow the rules. I remember reading. Somebody had bought a book of mine and thought it was a romantic comedy, or thought it was a romance, 
and they wrote a scathing review and they said, where's the alpha hero? Where's the romance? Where's and I was like, I found out later on romance is basically cunnilingus. You know, where's the cunnilingus? I'm sorry, I didn't, you know, next time. <laughs> I'm sorry, you know. She does say appalling things. I knew, I knew she would. That's a word in the dictionary. <laughs> I think one of the things um, that happens with someone like uh, Octavia Butler is she had a huge mind and huge curiosity. So it seemed if you look back over her career, it was like she would go down these paths and then she'd get interested in something over here and she'd go over there and she would she would investigate the hell out of it and then write something. Um, and I think that uh, the the series of books that she did, and she did write in series. She would like maybe write two or she would right. write three and then she would move on to the next kind of series. I think that was a product of a very, very intense intellect and curiosity um, that few of us could even like keep up with a good bit of the time. Um, and for me, I find I'm attracted to an idea and that I will parse it to death and then write something. You know, whether it's vampires or tattoos or um, hypnosis. And in a way, it's the same thing. I just haven't written as many books as she has. You know, I think it's it's an interesting way to, to do your writing, you know, to, to say to yourself, I am not stuck in one thing. I am not, I mean, I can't imagine I'm ever going to write a science fiction book. I, I actually can't imagine that because, number one, I can't count. I failed geometry. I failed all of those science classes. But you never know. I could be interest, become interested in one tiny element and then do it. But I, I, I think it takes amazing curiosity to, to have yourself, let yourself go through all those different kinds of speculative fiction approaches. Uh, I want to get back to what Joey was asking about, um, which is about the... Um, Speak up. Oh, um, about ethnicity, um, the, the ethnic perspective and, and, um, and horror and science fiction. That I, I read a very um, interesting definition of, of horror, um, of horror and of classic fantasy, which which are very closely related, um, in the um, I think the Encyclopedia of Fantasy, the, the the one that was edited by Clute, is that the one? Yeah. Uh, does anybody know? Um, anyway, there's there's a very interesting definition which breaks down the the basic structure of the fantasy, which is very similar to the basic structure of horror, which is that you have um, you have this world and something wrong enters the world. There's a wrongness that, that mm -hmm. breaks into the, um, the integrity of the world. And then um, the protagonists have to go on a sort of quest to identify the source of the wrongness and, um, and cleanse it from the world. And I think, um, I think the, the interesting thing is that, um, is that classically um, this, this has been a, a, a sort of a metaphor for um, the intrusion of new populations, new ethnicities, um, mm -hmm. people who, new cultures into um, a culture that is perceived as integral, although no culture is integral. So um, sort of in classic science fiction, fantasy, and, and horror, um, there's always been an element of this, although it, it's, it's rare that it's as blatant as saying this, this, this bad race has come into to our, our society. It comes into the story in a lot of different ways. So when you, you turn it around in the other direction and you have the, the other actually writing, writing the, the science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Well, you have, for example, you know, two, two great examples here of, um, of writers who have taken what is traditionally a horror genre, the vampire story, and turned it into something else. And I don't think that's a coincidence at all. Um, I think there's a lot in, in, in ethnic writing, um, ethnic uh, speculative fiction, I think there's a lot of turning the horror inside out and, and making, um, you know, d doing the, 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 the talented Mr. Ripley on it, basically making the, um, the villain into the sympathetic character, um, transforming the, um, the, uh, the code of, uh, of the evil creature into um, a moral or ethical code. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is that there is a lot of horror in Octavia Butler's writing, but she doesn't write horror fiction. Um, and the horror comes out of this, um, this 
inability to comprehend um, on, on both sides, on, on two different sides of the culture. And this, this is what really spoke to me about her was that you phase in and out of perspective, one, one perspective to the other. There are times in, in Lilith's Brood, the Xenogenesis trilogy, where um, you start out sympathetic to the humans, but there are times when you phase into this sympathy with the aliens because the humans are being so stubborn and obnoxious. <laughs> and, um, and the horror, there's a lot of horror in this series, and the horror is of loss of self, the, the horror of, um, of loss of your own integrity, the, the horror of um, the loss of your freedom and the loss of your freedom to choose your own path. And it happens to bo- on both sides. And uh, so I, I think that is um, one of the great powers that, um, that ethnic fiction can bring to a literature is um, this dual perspective and the, the ability to, to kind of pass um, fear and horror and anguish um, back and forth like a football between the two sides mm-hmm. and, um, and make it something that's, that's uh, totally human rather than just, you know, good versus bad. Cliff. Cliff will have a good question because he went to Clarion. (laughs) 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 Oh, you did? I did. Wow. Um, So speak up, man. Okay, so tying the last two points that people made, one of the things that Octavia did, I know because she told us, um, and I can see it in the writing, is she would research something that disturbed her Mm -hmm. and upset her. Bloodchild came out of her reading about the bot plot and being so incredibly grossed out that she wrote a story that was grosser than that. <laughs> uh, and then gave the rest of us nightmares uh, for however long. And uh, the parable series was based on her fears of that society breaking down and what would happen. And, you know, Xenogenesis is based on a fear of nuclear war, and, and which is what prompts the, the situation that at the beginning. So my question is, when you're writing and you're doing research, do you ever, um, and this is ties into the horror aspect, kind of, do you, re- do you deliberately dive into what upsets you, find the core of what it is, and write about it? That's tough work. Claire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Martha. No. <laughs> Jewel, maybe. Sometimes. (laughs) 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 Well, it it seems to me one of the things I would, after hearing Nalo's uh, Hopkins, uh, Hopkinson read last, was it last month or anyway, um, I think one of the things that horror depends on, and this ties in some with what you're saying, it's always about the other and the the strange people arriving and stuff. Uh, horror always, uh, classically, or in genre horror, it always, it has to be the very ordinary world. It has to be totally quotidian, you know. It has to be normal life, and then weird shit happens, you know. And, and, <laughs> but it has to be real normal. And she would use cultural stuff uh, to do that, you know, uh, it, so that so that the, uh, uh, the Caribbean-Canadian uh, community... Um, it was it was so real that it was it was it was the center. That it, you have to put it. It had to be the center. You know, um, what am I trying to say? That that's where to me that's where horror begins. You might have this thing idea in the back of your mind of the scariest thing in the world, but you always have to start by making the most ordinary. I think that's the, the secret of Stephen King. Yes. I think when yes. when in two hundred years when people want to know what life in America mid uh, you know right now they'll read a lot of Stephen King because the little details are like normal small town American See, life. I know. think our newspapers are horror stories every single day. <laughs> I mean I really do. I grew up thinking that we would all die in a nuclear blast. Every single day I think about an earthquake. I sleep with my shoes and my clothes by my bed <laughs> for the quake. I you know and then I had a friends who were geologists and they say well you know it doesn't matter because the earth bucks you up 40 feet in the air you come down you break all your bones. So, uh, you know, you get the elevator. I get on the bridge, and I Thanks think the bridge lot. is going to fall. And then, and then there are these genocides, and there is disease, and there is, you know, 19 kids died of, 
uh, swine flu in the United States last week, but that's nothing by comparison to all the people dying every day. And I just don't understand. I mean, to me, that's horror. That's horror. It's happening. You don't have to make it up. And and it saddens it saddens me, and it it grieves me, and and uh, you know I have no idea what to do about it. I mean, one person can't do anything about it. What can one person do? But somehow you got out of bed this morning. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know I wanted to be dressed in case the earthquake came. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Um, I was interested in, in hearing uh, whether or not, to, to what extent, um, the, the writers are interested in using in sort of speculative fictions, metaphorical and allegorical abilities to sort of address the issues of race and politics and identity that they're interested in. Because certainly that's something that comes up a lot when people talk about science fiction politics is the ability to sort of do you know metaphors about different political situations. But at the same time, I think that certainly one of the things that was really interesting about Butler was that. A lot of her real, a lot of her best work obviously has those elements, but at the same time can't sort of be reduced into right. a simple metaphor yeah. about yeah. Right. or whatever. Good question. You go first, Claire. <laughs> um, I, well, you, you you said what I was going to say that um, that the best fiction is can, can be read as both can both be read as metaphor and also has its own integrity, um, stands outside of it. And I think, um, I think that's, that is the power of speculative fiction is that um, mimetic fiction, this is what, what I call mimetic fiction, the quote unquote realistic fiction, um, has to, um, it can't diverge too far from, um, from the quotidian. And, and even, even the genres, even mystery, um, and even non-supernatural horror, w- you know, we have to have purses and bicycles and cars and, and, and so forth. We, we have to eat breakfast, you know, that you can't diverge from that too far. Whereas um, with science fiction and uh, fantasy and, um, and supernatural horror and all of these speculative uh, genres, you can create a world in which the quotidian is completely different. And that is your task as a writer to, to give that world integrity in life. And, um, and ironically, that is what brings your politics to life as well. The, your, your, eye, your eye stays on the ball, but the ball is not the politics. The ball is the reality of the world, the integrity of the world. And when you take your eye off this knot of politics that you're trying to untangle and explicate for people um, in your really ham-fisted way, um, and you put it on making this world come alive, um, all kinds of things come out of here that you would never have put into your fiction if you had tried to do it consciously. It's all about tricking your consciousness to go to sleep and tricking your subconsciousness, um, subconscious to come awake. And um, so, um, so, of course, then the result is that you do have an integral, very alive world that stands on its own and is not just, it's not just a romanicle for, um, for the real world, not just a one-to-one. And when you see novels that are a one-to-one metaphor kind of analogy to the real world, they're not very alive. They're very forced, you know. I think that's one of the benefits of writing in any kind of genre. Um, And writing comedy, I think, Marta, you said it really well, that you can introduce whatever your political ideals are, and people don't actually get it. They're laughing so hard they don't realize, oh, my God, I've just learned something really important. And I think genre fiction is a really great way to do that. Um, Anyone who's read the detective series Blanche on the Lamb, uh, African-American detective uh, in, I think it takes place in Boston. Uh, I can't remember her name, Barbara. Neely. Neely, thank you. Um, She really talks about race and class in these ways that get, a, get and, and uh, abu- uh, spousal abuse in ways that you would just put the book down, except it's a detective novel and you can't put it down because you got to find out who done it. Um, writing vampire fiction is a really great way for me to, to talk about what what our goals could be if we wanted the world to be better just by having an individual character who's always interrogating that for herself. Uh, So I I feel really fortunate to be interested in genre because you can show people different ways to be in the world without making them fall asleep. I I was just going to say that I think 
a real challenge is, you know, I, uh, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I feel very lucky to be from here, and I feel very lucky to live here. And uh, my husband refused to move to Iceland yesterday. <laughs> I said, property's got to be cheap. The whole economy <laughs> collapsed there. But, um, you know, we're, I feel safe here, too, because it's so diverse. But a lot of the people, you know, I think about a lot of my readers are from a place that's entirely different than this. And I want to reach out to them. So I can't scare them off. And I have mm -hmm. to try and figure out how to communicate with them in a way that they understand and they're not, um, they don't just run away. It's hard. It's a challenge. I mean, I don't know. I, it, it freaks me out every time I get a Facebook request from somebody who has all this Jesus stuff on their, their ah. side. And I'm thinking, do they know who I am? And, <laughs> you know, do they know that I got one today and they had all this Glenn Beck stuff on their site and, and you, know, all the, you know, all this right wing, like extreme right wing rhetoric. I said, you know, do I want to be friends with this person? Probably you know, not. It, probably not. <laughs> that one I did turn down. But but I will take a lot of them, and I, I do want to reach out. And it is a challenge because in my daily life, I don't know these people. I never see these people. I specifically live here to avoid these people. <laughs> 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 but I don't want to deny their humanity. <laughs> so. Well, yeah. Then do you, do you all write for an audience or desire to be published for that, for that audience that will pay you, of course, but also be interested enough in what you, what you have to say regardless of who you are. I absolutely write for an audience. And, yeah. and so you target what, what you have to say? I, I, I say I want to communicate with people. If I want to write for myself and just what I want to write, I just stay at home and write in my journals whatever the heck I wanted to write. And it would be totally, it would be very different. And it would be very different and nobody would ever look at it. Except when I was dead and then they'd find my journals and they'd say, what is this crap? And then they'd throw it out. But um, yeah, I write for an audience. Um, Claire? Well, it, this is easier for Marta and, and Jewel to answer because they actually have audiences. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, and and I, I sort of don't yet. So I, I'm working on having an audience. So no, I don't actually write for an audience yet. I suspect it gets different when you actually start getting feedback from people who've actually read your book. And, you know, and, and then you know you have an audience and you know people are listening mm. and you become more, I, t mm. correct me if I'm wrong, I assume, you become more conscious of, of the fact that you have an audience. But I don't have one, so it's not well, a problem. I don't know that you become more conscious. If you write, if you're a... I write, I can write in a very self-indulgent way um, that's just fun and um, I love absurdist humor I can, I can, or I can rant forever. Nobody wants to read that. I mean, well, my, you can do stand-up humor. I could do stand-up humor. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> it's a good career at my age. She's standing up. <laughs> but no, you know, I think you, you if you want to get pup, if you want to get published, you're saying you want to write for an audience. The moment you say you want to get published, otherwise, yeah. why do it? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't write uh, for a particular segment. Uh, when I'm writing, I'm thinking about, say, you know, people who are, like, interested in vampire stories. Well, I'm not just writing for people who are interested in vampire stories, or I'm not just writing for lesbians or people of color. I have this idea in my head of people who would read the book, and I've had the good fortune that my readers look exactly like I imagined them, <laughs> which is they look like everyone. They look like everyone. I, there is not an ethnicity, a gender, a class, uh, or any of those variables that has not come up to me and said, you know, I read the Gilda stories, or you know, I read Don't Explain. And um, so in my mind, it's, it's a broad view. And mostly what I think about is, am I giving them as much of me as I can? Because that's what's going to draw the people in. You know, it is hard if you have an audience and they say, um, 
you know, people write you uh, letters or when you do readings and they tell you things. Well, you know, I really, I had somebody tell me, I read from the Gilda stories once, you know, I thought it would have more sex in it. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> uh, is that because I'm a lesbian? You thought there should be sex, a lot of sex? I, 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 I didn't know what to say. So then I wrote this collection, Don't Explain, of short stories. It had a lot of sex in it. So in that, you know, so I listened to my audience and that worked out nicely. Um, I even, you know, had Gilda have a little sex and so that worked out nicely, but mostly you can't, you can't listen to it too much. You just have to really fig not figure out what's going out. And I think that'll attract people. One of the gifts that you have as a science fiction writer, which uh, I write science fiction, is you have um, the, the reader, you have a, an audience that actually responds and follows things, and the reader is a gamer. The science fiction reader is, uh, they're immediately ready to figure out what's going on. And you can't yep. say that. That's why there's not a lot of mainstream stories, say, in The New Yorker. Although, I mean, a lot of science fiction, although there's some these days. Mm -hmm. But generally, the mainstream writer doesn't, they're, they're reading for story or character. And the science fiction reader goes right into it. Story's fine, character's fine. But the first thing you're going to do is figure, it's a puzzle. You know, you're, mm -hmm. So there's a structural um, thing that's built in. And uh, that's a lot where uh, Butler came from. Uh, now, she began to move away away from, like, genre science fiction, I think, in later years. But, like, like Bloodchild would – there's no way that story could have been published anywhere except as science fiction or, or this novel. It, it just is. And it is because the first thing you're figuring out in that story is what the hell's What's going on. What's going on. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. independent of what the stories actually are, um, I've been thinking a lot lately about, and this ties in with the audience that you're writing for, about race and, and publishing. It seems to me that Octavia was originally published as a science fiction writer, which is why a white woman wound up on the cover of Dawn, Infamous, et cetera, et cetera, that Terry alluded to. And then her books were quite literally reskinned as African-American literature. Right. The science fiction elements toned down or removed altogether from the covers, and Xenogenesis, which is a very science fiction-y name, changed to Lilith Brood, mm -hmm. which is a much more literary name. And if you look at the covers on the current omnibus editions, they are as innocuously non-science fictional right. as you can. Mm -hmm. So it seemed, and so I'm wondering about progress, because back in the 50s we had an imaginary black science fiction fan. <laughs> and here in 2009, it seems like the publishers can't imagine black science fiction readers or people interested in a black science fiction writer. They're either interested in a black writer or a science fiction writer. Right. Right. Um, and this seems to come from both sides. The science fiction publishers want to hide her blackness. Yes. And the and the mainstream publishers want to hide her science fictionness. Yes. And I w yeah, it's, um, that's the way. The that's the way publishing. No, they're not. I mean, publishing is the business that uh, in which the greatest breakthrough in publishing occurred with the publishing of the world according to Garp, in which they've decided to publish the novel with several different color covers, and they figured out oh, we can sell a lot more because we'll just give different color covers and co color appeals to different people. That's, the, that's how, how smart or not smart publishing is. I mean, to them, that was their greatest creative breakthrough. Um, so no, they don't learn that much. Really, they're all about the market. How can they market you? What is the segment that they can market you to? I mean, the Guild of Stories was turned down by every major publisher mainstream and science fiction publisher in New York and one publisher actually was brave enough to say to me no we can't publish that book it's black it's female and it's vampire that's too complicated come back in 2009 yeah right. I was like too complicated who are you trying to sell this to a six-month baby what are you talking about so I, publishing is not often that smart and is not really on the cutting edge and they only get to the cutting edge when something pushes them there and it is the external it's, 
it's uh, as Grace Paley says, uh, paraphrasing her, you know, the mainstream is shallow and slow. All the action is in the tributaries. And I think that's true. I mean, that's why independent presses did a lot for women's writing and for right. people of color writing, um, because it's those tributaries that can can really play with you. But on the other hand, African-American um, bookstores wouldn't carry the Gilda stories. I've, in my whatever 20 years of writing, I've only been invited to read in a black bookstore once in my life. So, because they don't, they're not that interested in, you know. Well, we've, we've entered the period. We, this happens every time where we piss and moan about publishing. Yeah. And, uh, this I think, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like a natural progression, but I think it's getting late. Um, thank you all. Thank you, Marta and Claire and Jewel. And thank you all for coming thank you. and come see us again. We do this uh, once a month and it's always exactly the same. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>